Let's talk a little bit about how you think porn impacts a man's libido, a man's ability to pick up women, and how porn might impact a man's ability to get what he wants in the bedroom. Because I've heard you talk about this a few times. And I was actually very surprised with what you said. And I was like, yes, okay, this I, I like this. So how do you think porn impacts these different areas of a man's life? Yeah, it definitely screws with the guy's libido. It screws with his, his reward circuitry in his brain. And I do get a bit, of, I, get a, I get a bit of flack from uh, previous co-stars and, and people who are in my industry now. Uh, like, for, what are you for, doing? For saying this stuff. And it's not like, it's, uh, like, I'm not trying to like take, it's not like I'm trying to take money out of their, out of their mouths or, you know, the, take with the roof away from their head. Like, let's be honest, they're not going to run out of money anytime soon. They're totally fine. Like there's not, there's not a short supply of men consuming adult content. That is not a problem. I am far more concerned with the people, with, with especially younger guys who are growing up on mobile phones with TikTok brain, let's say, who are constantly plugged into that and they're constantly habitually consuming hardcore, high streaming, like 4K adult content on their phones from a young age when they're teenagers and their brains are still developing. That is a can of worms that we've opened and we have no idea what the long-term ramifications are going to be. We're starting to see it because you can see graphs of the advent of websites like Pornhub and, uh, and Red Tube and X videos, these kind of what we call tube sites. That's what we refer to them in the, in the industry. You can see when those hit the internet and there's a skyrocketing rate of erectile dysfunction in men under the age of 30 from that moment onwards. Wow. Uh, so we already, like, that's a correlation, but there's a pretty good chance that there's a, cor- there's a causation there as well. Mm. So it definitely impacts that. And, and we know the reason for that is that it, it screws with the dopamine circuitry in the male brain. The novelty aspect of pornography is something that is very, very hard to replicate in the real world with a one individual woman uh, in front of you who is not photoshopped and lit up perfectly and doing all kinds of freaky kinky things and saying all kinds of freaky kinky things. So when, you know, men who have a habitual porn habit end up getting with a woman, mm. sometimes they have premature ejaculation problems. Sometimes they have erectile dysfunction problems, performance anxiety problems, even delayed ejaculation problems. All manner of issues in the bedroom can manifest from a guy consuming porn habitually like that. So that's why I, I tell guys the first time, if you have any problem at all in the bedroom whatsoever, the very first step you should take is to cut that out. Because mm. at the very least, just give your brain the ability to reset. And I also tell them not just cut out like pornography, but also cut out TikTok also cut out endless scrolling on social media because it does the same thing. Though both of them screw with the same dopamine circuitry in your brain. One's probably a little bit more fun than the other one. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of a different reward there, yeah. Yeah, but uh, they, they both cause the same problem. And when the dopamine receptors are not as, act, or not, as uh, uh, not as sensitive, your reward circuitry isn't working properly, so your motivation doesn't work as well. You're not, you're not as motivated, you don't have as much drive and ambition to go out, hit the gym, build a business, talk to that pretty girl. All these things that, that push your life into a positive direction are now dialed down and dampened mm. because of that one habit. Yeah, I appreciate what you're saying because I think, uh, you know, over the years, I've seen a lot of men who maybe want a certain type of sexual sex life with their partner, you know, with their girlfriend, with their wife, et cetera. And oftentimes porn is like this 
mistress in the relationship where when things aren't kind of going the way that they want or is not as frequent as they want or they're afraid to actually go for what they want in the relationship. It's just like, oh, I can just go watch porn and get off and watch the thing that I want versus push through what you were talking about before, which is like that risk, you know, that's natural with pursuing what we want. You know, that risk of like, okay, this is the type of sex that I want to have with my girlfriend or with my wife. There's going to be some risk that's inherent in that, that I think porn makes a, a very easy case for guys to just like check out and not have to go do that. Um, yeah, they'd rather, they'd rather, you know, open up a tab on their browser than have a somewhat uncomfortable conversation for like yeah, a few minutes. 100%. You know? 100%. Um, I'm, I'm curious how, what, one of the big questions, because I, I think I told you before we jumped on, I polled my audience, you know, I have a, a membership platform with like hundreds of guys from around the world and I pulled my Instagram audience. And one of the biggest questions that I got from men specifically was how you would talk to your son about porn and sex. And I thought that was really interesting, but it's a question that I get a lot. And I'm, I'm also curious, very curious to hear your take. So how would you approach that? It's a very good question. So with, with pornography, I, I would, porn specifically, I'd make sure he knows everything I just mentioned. So here's the problem with it. Here's what's going to, here's what's going to do to your brain. Say this, and I'd take, I'd make the exact same argument for things like TikTok, like I said, or, uh, you know, endless scrolling on Instagram or endless scrolling on, on Twitter. So I'd make that exact same argument. You're going to be, especially as a young man with a developing brain, you're going to be very careful over this. I'd also make the exact same argument for things like weed and, and uh, alcohol. I'd say <laughs> I'd avoid consuming them, mate. Like this is going to, this is going to have very negative ramifications uh, that you can't, it's either you can't reverse or it's going to be extremely hard to reverse and come back from that. Now, in terms of talking about actual sex, one, there's a massive difference between pornography and sex. <laughs> I make sure he fundamentally understands that. The people on, in pornography are, are acting. It's actors they're doing, and they're doing, it's kind of, it's actually, it's a combination between acting and like extreme sports. Like they're doing things that for, at, at weird angles and weird, and weird trajectories for your viewing pleasure. Not necessarily for each other's pleasure. I like uh, I like that description. Act, uh, acting in extreme sports. That's good, man. So, you. Uh, <laughs> you can you can however you can take some you can take inspiration from from pornography to spice up your own sex life. If there is something to be taken away from it, it is that it is the fact that you can use it as inspiration for like your own your own bedroom and uh, obviously in a, in a consensual way with your partner who actually want, if she wants to actually indulge in that and that involves having a conversation with her. And in, in regards to uh, yeah, again, going down down the rabbit hole of talking about sex with you know like a, a teenager or a teenage boy or something like that. Basically, teaching them all the things that, I, that we didn't get taught as kids ourselves, man. Like we got okay in Australia at least we got basic sex education, you know, understanding how pregnancy works, understanding how you know how the period works, understanding like why he's feeling you know these certain like feelings right now towards girls when he didn't have those feelings before, understanding the, the consequences of engaging in unprotected sex, be that pregnancy, be that STDs. But not trying to make him, and I would endeavor to have, you know, these kinds of adult conversations with my son without making him feel guilt or shame in any way about sex and about his sexual desires. Because I think that is very important, especially for young men. And I think a large part of the reason that men have problems in the bedroom, especially when it comes to expressing their desires and their fantasies and exploring, you know, maybe kinks with their partner that they might be interested in exploring is that they have, they have ingrained shame and guilt around their sex drive and their sexual urges. Mm. And they express those 
through porn use because it's the computer or the, or the, or the mobile phone isn't shaming them and guilting them for having those desires. So they, they still have them. They're, they're, not, they're not going away, but they've, they've found an outlet to indulge and engage in them without the fear of being shamed or guilted for them. So I would start by saying, look, there's, not, there's absolutely no shame and no guilt in, in, you know, in having sexual desires towards a woman. You shouldn't feel guilt or shame for it. You should be respectful and you should, and it should obviously be consensual and you should never you know, push a woman's boundary. And I'd teach him how to, to know a woman's boundaries and how to recognize that and how to make a woman feel comfortable and safe and secure with him so that she feels comfortable enough to participate in sex with him, which is also another important thing. We just get young, young boys today, especially get, you know, they get taught that they're, they're the devil and they're evil and they're bad and they're all potential rapists, which is absolutely not the fucking case. Mm-hmm. Sorry, just swearing the show. I, uh, I just get a bit annoyed when people say that. I think there's nothing, there's nothing worse you could do for a young man than to tell him in the middle of puberty, when he's just, just starting to be interested in women, when he's just trying, starting to explore and, and develop his sexuality, to tell him that he is a potential rapist and he's, a, he's, going, he's going to sexually assault women is absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely terrible. No, like 99.999% of men do not, are, are not even physically capable of doing that to a woman. It takes an especially sick and twisted and evil individual to even be aroused in the presence of a woman who is not interested in him in any way. Mm. I think it's, it's, absolutely disgusting that we tell young men that they are, you know, that they are bad and evil and, and such for having sexual desires towards women when no, no man wants to, to, no man wants to be with a woman who does not want to be with him. Mm. No, no healthy uh, male wants that scenario. So, and I think instead we should be teaching young men to be protectors and providers for women, to be the kinds of men who prevent that from happening to her rather than trying to tell men oh, we need to stop teaching boys. We need to teach boys not to rape. You don't need to teach boys not to rape because boys aren't rapists. Boys are not running around trying to rape anybody. There are, but there's a particular subset of evil people who are inherently bad and they, they are screwed up in the head in that way. And we need to teach every other boy, every other man on the planet to protect women from those guys. Mm. That's what we need to be doing. So there's a, a, a crash course in my curriculum for my, my future son on, on sex and, uh, <laughs> and, and porn. Like the data says something that is entirely different than the narrative. Mm. And the discussion, what's really interesting, the discussion around failing young men has flipped in two years. And that is in two years ago, if you were in any way advocating for men, it was seen as a zero-sum game, and that meant you were anti-women. If you were talking about struggling young men and we need to be focused on helping young men, that was seen as misogynist. Just from mm. the get-go, it was like, boss, you've had a 400-year head start. How come your hair's on fire now when women have been, you know, essentially abused and had real disadvantages over the last, you know, several thousand years? And so the conversation that we're having now, even some feminists are recognizing, you know, who wants more emotionally and economically viable men? Women. And there's something going on here. And I think the data reveals the following, and that is no cohort in America has fallen further faster in the last 40 years than young men. It used to be uh, 40, 60 women to men in college. Now it's flipped at 60, 40. And it's even worse than that because men drop out at greater rates. Over the next five years, there's going to be two women who graduate from college for every one man. 
And you think, well, okay, fine. Women are finally getting their due. And you could say, well, when it was disproportionate towards women, we were there for women. We had affirmative action for women. We had affirmative action for people of color. And by the way, that was the right thing to do. But now that it's flipped, you know, you can walk through NYU and everywhere there are flyers, you know, women in consulting, angels of banking, all these female support groups, go girl. It's just everywhere. There's nothing for young men. And if you think about uh, some of the knock-on effects, the unintended consequences, I'm a progressive, but there's a general feeling in progressive politics that you don't want to acknowledge the difference between men and women. Because if you were to acknowledge a difference in the genders, you're somehow, again, discriminating against people who are non-binary or transgender. And that's not true at all. But there is, and studies show this, there is a difference from a very young age between people born as males and people born as females. Our prefrontal cortex doesn't mature as early. So an 18-year-old, two 18-year-olds applying to college, the woman is effectively competing against a 16-year-old woman when she competes against an 18-year-old man. The executive function, the on-off, gas and brake, is just much more immature for men. And you've seen the stats. Four times more likely to kill themselves, three times more likely to be addicted, 12 times more likely to be incarcerated. Uh, women, more single women now own homes than men, which I think reflects a lot of progress. But the unintended consequence here, and there's all sorts of knock-on offense, is that one, uh, women, and we don't like to say this, are typically drawn to men who are, what I say, taller than them. So physically taller. 50% of women say they're not attracted or wouldn't date someone shorter than them. It's probably more like 80% because I think in a survey, women probably don't acknowledge it or take that number down because it sounds weird to say I wouldn't be interested in a man shorter than me. But also women mate socioeconomically horizontally and up, men horizontally and down. And three-quarters of women say economic viability is very important in selection of a mate. It's only one in four for men. And here's the issue. Every year, women are getting taller and men are getting shorter. Mm. And so there's just fewer and fewer men who are viewed as economically viable, emotionally viable as mates. And so we're seeing mating rates going down. We're seeing what I call mating inequality. And that is technology tends to consolidate a market. Amazon consolidated Retail, social media consolidated, social, Google consolidated search or information gathering. Dating apps consolidate mating in the sense that women have a much finer filter. And because they have access to millions of people online, they can implement those filters. And 80% of the women are interested in the same 10% of men. So if you're a reasonable looking guy, that's not even number one, but you went to MIT and you're working at Google and your Rolex accidentally slips in your profile picture you're going to get a massive number of swipe rights. If you're kind of 50 to 90th percentile, you do okay. The bottom half of men are literally shut out of the market. I mean, shut out, no, zero swipes. And it creates this downward spiral of confirmation that the market, specifically women, aren't interested in them. And the problem is now that you have more than 50% of uh, young people and like two-thirds of men living at home, they become they low self-esteem. And where it gets really ugly is they start blaming others. Specifically, they start blaming women. They become more prone to misogynistic content. They become more prone to nationalistic content, blaming other people, whether it's immigrants for taking the jobs or women, whatever it might be. And they start buying into this notion that somehow it's women's fault and they need to take on this aggressive complexion around society and women. And I think that's really, really ugly. And the thing I hate about some of these, quote unquote, you know, I use air quotes, advocates for men on TikTok, is the first 80% is great. Take responsibility for your life. Get really strong physically. Have a propensity towards action. And then it comes off the rails. They start talking about 
women as property and putting her in her place and crazy like metrics around what it means to be a man is like some sort of dominance or power over women. And it's just Mm. like, Jesus, how did this get so ugly so fast? And so I think whenever you start talking about an advocacy for men, correctly, progressives and women, their their spidey sense goes off like, okay, is this just repackaged violence against women? So in the last two years, the conversation has become much more productive. It's like, okay, let's acknowledge the data here. Men are really struggling. The reason I got interested in it is I relate to it. I, I just, I was kind of going nowhere as a young man. It was upsetting. It was, I was lost. So I relate to young men. I have two young boys. I can see the difference between them and their female classmates. Mm. It's like they're, my boy's 15. He's literally a dope. And the 15-year-old, some of the 15-year-old girls in his class, I'm like, that's going to be the junior senator from Pennsylvania. I mean, <laughs> they're, they're, the girls are just shooting. And there's, there's evidence showing that they're actually pulling away, that it's mm. the, the delta is actually expanding. And so, and I have a lot of friends who have, the narrative goes something like this. And the people who are hands down most receptive and supportive of my content, some young men like it. A lot of young men like it. Some say you're accusing us of being incels and we don't like it. A lot of feminists correctly say, um, have a real problem with this and are very cautious of this content. I understand that. Hands down, the people who are most supportive of this content is mothers. And I get emails that go something like this. Two daughters, one son, one daughter at Wharton. One daughter in PR in Chicago, and my son's at home in the basement vaping and playing video games. And there's just a, re- a bunch of biological, societal factors. A lot of the kind of on-ramp jobs to the middle class have been outsourced and manufacturing. Uh, men are told societally that they, you know, quite frankly, they should just be in their place. They try and tone down some of their masculine features around being aggressive. Colleges, edu- the education system is biased against men. Two people brought into the principal's office for the exact same infraction on a behavior-adjusted basis the boy is twice as likely to be suspended. The behaviors and activities that colleges and schools reward, discipline, staying in your seat, are just, just girls have just a much easier time with. So good for them. They, they, when we leveled the educational playing field and maybe even tilted it towards women, they have just blown by men. Mm-hmm. But now we need to look at, okay, if we want to have a society where people form the elemental foundations of a society, and that's relationships, if we want men who are economically viable, if we want to have kids and not go into population decline, what can we do to level up men just as we have attempted to level up other groups that are struggling? But the, the fact that we're even having this dialogue without me waiting for, I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of tweets of hate and anger and accusations of misogyny now means the dialogue has expanded dramatically. And now I see my job as we have to come up with, with a different definition of masculinity than the definition that is coming from some of these quote-unquote male advocates because there is a level of control and even like thinly veiled package violence and mm-hmm. dominance and control over women that is just wrong. And I think we need a different, if you will, a different vision of masculinity. And I'll provide a definition and then stop talking. But I think masculinity... It's a man-made construct or a person, you know, it's a societal construct, femininity and masculinity. We can, we can have it be whatever we want it to be. But masculinity is, you know, a set of behaviors that are usually associated with people born as men. But I like to think that it's acquiring the skills and strengths such that you can protect for and advocate for others. That means early on, you got to work on yourself. You got to be strong. You got to get certification. You got to be mentally fit. You got to work really hard and try and establish skills such that you can get economic security. You can be emotionally and mentally strong. And the whole point, the whole shooting match is such that you can protect others. 
you can provide for your family, you can provide for yourself, and then at some point in your life, you can start advocating for and protecting others. That is true masculinity. That's what people in the military, that's what cops do, that's what firemen do, that's what, and by the way, it's not, it's not just the domain of men. A lot mm-hmm. of women demonstrate wonderful masculine attributes. It's getting up at fucking six in the morning and going to work and doing shitty work such that you can protect your family economically. You know, there's a lot. It's, it's being physically strong, being mentally strong. But for God's sakes, it's never using your masculinity to in any way oppress people or to be some sort of predator for women physically or sexually or not have the same level of respect and admiration for women. So I, I think we need some traditionally you know, masculine figures to start mm-hmm. advocating a new form of masculine and, and also to say that it's okay to be masculine. It's okay to want to have sex. It's okay to take risks. It's okay to be sexually aggressive. It's okay to go up to a woman who, a strange woman who you're attracted to and try and initiate a conversation. And if you don't know the difference between being aggressive and harassing someone, you got bigger problems. Mm-hmm. That's okay. That's okay. It's okay to ask someone out. Even if the, I mean, the thing that came off the rails for me was that Gillette ad, and Richard Reeves talks about this a few years ago in the midst of the Me Too movement, where a guy sees a hot woman and he jumps up to go talk to her. And then his friend kind of gets away and says, hey, bro, don't, that's not cool. Don't do that. It's like, that's where we are. We're not supposed to initiate contact with strange women. And I have found that a lot of women would actually appreciate respectful overtures of interest from men. And if they're not interested, you'll figure it out very fast. And guess what? You're both going to be fine. You're, mm-hmm. It is not a traumatizing event. And so I think there are male behaviors that we have to say to men, this is okay. This is okay. It's okay to embrace your masculinity. But we have a situation where professionally, biologically, societally, educationally, men are really struggling. And the last fact, and I promise I will stop here, is that Pew did a study that one in three men under the age of 30 haven't had sex in the last year. Mm. And people hear the word sex and their brain fires. I think of sex as a key step to an intimate relationship, and relationships are the basis of happiness in a productive society. And a huge cohort of men are not establishing the skills to have relationships. It confirms this insecurity they have, and they just go down a rabbit hole. And by the time they're 30, they haven't developed skills. Young men need guardrails. They need a girlfriend, a friend, a boss, parents to tell them, no, you got to put on a clean shirt. You know, my first girlfriend was like, okay, if you want to get high every night, you're not going to have sex with me. I'm, I'm not interested in a guy who has, who smokes pot every night, mm. right? My mom told me in implicit and explicit ways, you've got to get your shit together because you're, you know, you got to take care of me. You know, my friends were like, okay, boss, you need young men. I had my boss at work at Morgan Stanley used to take me to a conference room after meeting and go, you can't say that shit. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Mm. You don't have to talk. If you don't have anything productive to say, don't say anything. I needed that. Young men need that. And so many young men are detaching from so many relationships. They have no guardrails. God, that was a rant. <laughs> no, that was, that was great, man. I mean, I was trying to like track. I was like, oh my God, there's so many pieces that I want to touch on and, and talk about. But, <clears throat> you know, I think that's true. I was kind of getting a chuckle because uh, you're talking about these guardrails. And I remember when my wife and I first met and first started dating several years ago, I was living in an apartment that was like your classic bachelor pad where, and it's not for a lack of money. I was sleeping on, a, on an air mattress. All of my books were stacked up beside my couch that was acting as my coffee table. And all of my socks had holes in them, which some of them still do. But, you know, we, when we started dating, she was like, what is going on? You know, and I was living in Vancouver. She was living in Manhattan. 
here's this very successful, you know, one of the top marriage and family therapists in, in Manhattan dating this guy. And she shows up into my apartment. She looks around and she's like, what is going on in here? And I was like, I just haven't prioritized it. And she's like, well, I don't know if I necessarily want to come back here unless you have like a fucking bookshelf, you know, and a real 100%. mattress on, 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 a, on a bed frame. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess I should probably do that. So I think it's those types of things that, you know, whether it's from other women, other men that I think are very important. And to your point about some of this rise of, I don't know what we'd want to call it, you know, misogynistic masculinity or whatever. I remember when I first started Man Talks, there was a lot of pushback, you know, and I was just bringing men together to have conversations. The whole premise was that they were going to share their defining moments as if they were going to die the next day to sort of impart some of their life's wisdom or lessons onto other men. And it was so interesting to see some of the pushback that I got initially because I started this eight or nine years ago. And now today, it's a very different thing. Like you're saying, I have mothers constantly DMing me, sending me emails. Thank you so much for what you do, all that kind of stuff. And the conversation has radically changed or, you know, wives sort of saying, I'm going to send my husband your way or, you know, he's checking out your content or who else should he be listening to? So I think it's changing quite a bit, but I, I have noticed this rise in this very rigid, one-dimensional version of masculinity that seems to be in opposition to the narrative that has emerged over the last decade or two. And I think, and you know, somebody asked me about this the other day, and I said, you know, I think what we as men often look for are frameworks. We love frameworks to operate in the world through, you know, to be able to see the world through a very specific framework. And I think that some of those movements give men who don't have a lot of masculine or male energy in their life, don't have a lot of order or frameworks or structure in their life, it gives them a very clear way to operate. It's like, here's Mm -hmm. what a man is. Here's what a woman is. Here's what Mm -hmm. it means to be masculine. Here's what it means to be feminine. And if you just don't ever step outside of those confines, then you're good. And so I think that it, it creates this illusion of safety and security that is is oftentimes very crippling and can be abusive and can be very detrimental. And so, and again, that's not me advocating for it or or supporting it in any way. I've just always tried to figure out like, why are those frameworks, like why are people like Andrew Tate so appealing to some men, you know, because some guys really just love him, you know, and pedestal him. And so I'm curious to get your take on why do you feel like some of those structures, whether it's the red pill movement or the black pill movement or the Andrew Tates of the world, what is so appealing from your perspective to young men about those guys? It kind of all comes down to, in my view, if you were trying to find ground zero, it goes back to what I said before. And that is the basis of evolution, the fundamental compact with any society is that if I work hard and play by the rules, my kids will do better than me. Mm. And for the first time in our nation's history, that compact has been broken. And that is your son or your daughter, mostly your sons, are not doing as well as dad was at that age. And that creates t- tremendous shame and rage. That is a breakdown in a universal celestial compact we have. Mm. And in America, up until like the 50s and 60s, 92% of, of people born were going to do better than their parents. Wow. And now it's 49. Wow. And so the majority, and then for men, I think it's more like 40. So the majority of men, and then 
because of this kind of nimbious rejectionist culture, different talk show that makes housing more expensive, you have a lot of men at home. They're not doing as well as their parents were at that age. And there's just this feeling of shame and rage. And then, by the way, try and get a date. It's not a good rap. Oh, I live at home. That's not a good rap. So you get confirmation from dating apps and you have constant reminders from your roommates, i.e. mom and dad, that you're failing. And so what do you do? Do you go into a hole and say, it's my fault and turn on yourself? And some do that. But a lot say, I want answers. And they're very prone. If you look at the darkest moments in history, they all have one thing in common. They have a, an economic cohort of young men who are failing economically and want answers. And the easiest answer is, it's not your fault. It's not your fault that you're being, you're being unfairly persecuted because of this group that's taking your jobs or this group that's um, coordinating against you or women, whatever it might be, or the woke movement, whatever it is, it's not your fault. So they're very open that. In addition, I think the content you're talking about, a lot of it's really good. A lot of it's very productive. Uh, I see some videos from Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate. And by the way, I, I shouldn't conflate the two because I think Jordan actually has a healthier set of messages, and I think it calls on more science. But the majority of Andrew Tate's videos, I would say, are actually pretty productive. It leads to a dark, ugly place and a certain mentality around, I own women. And if I'm a real man, I'm going to put a woman in her place. And she's not ever, she doesn't ever go out without me. I mean, all this bullshit, right? So the men are looking for answers and they're very prone they're very prone to nationalistic content. Once a man comes off the rails economically and emotionally and doesn't have a viable partner to kind of keep him in check, weird things. He's more likely not to believe in climate change. Mm-hmm. He's a lot more likely to have a gun. He's just more likely to embrace nationalistic content. In some, he's just he becomes a shitty citizen. And if you look at the most violent unstable societies in the world, they all have the same thing in common. They have a disproportionate number of young, broke, and alone men. And men become violent. I mean, think about mass shooters in the U.S. We know who they are before we know who they are. Mm -hmm. They're young men who haven't attached to school, haven't attached to relationships, haven't attached to work. And that's not to say that every young man who's an introvert is a danger. I'm not saying that. I just don't think you you can ignore that. The most, the most violent, dangerous societies in the world just have too many of this, this, this one individual. And also, we have seen population rate decline. We're seeing less household formation. So I think when you're a, a guy and you feel this rage and this shame, you're looking for excuses that it isn't your fault. And you're looking for someone who offers you the answer and gives you a channel for your rage and says, it's not your fault. Do these things. It's this person's fault. And you become very susceptible. I mean, this is Trump. Trump came into a group of people who had been overlooked and who were Mm -hmm. like, I've played by the rules. I've worked my ass off and my life just isn't very good. And this is a guy that comes in. This is not your fault. It's immigrants coming over the border and taking your jobs. You know, all this, all this stuff, this blame game that happens. And I think men are especially susceptible to that message. On that note, and then I'm going to segue into relationships. I think it was uh, Christopher Hitchens who said, choose your regrets. Mm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was a very prominent atheist figure back in like the 90s and early 2000s. No, I'm surprised that I'm not. What's his name? Christopher Hitchens. 
I will have to pick it up. And for the myself. for the people that that are out there, I feel like our modern time could use the hitch slap right mm-hmm. now. But <laughs> he was a very, <laughs> yeah, he was a very interesting intellectual. But one of the things that he said was to choose your regrets, like live your life in a way where you actually are trying to make decisions where because you're you're always going to regret something, right? Yes. There's always going to be some kind of regret when you're choosing between people that you want to date or partners or jobs or career opportunities or 100%. travel. It's like, you know, the options are are sort of endless in many ways and so you ch- you choose the life, the path that you want to walk where you are not only choosing the direction you want to go, but you're choosing the regrets that you're willing to live with. And mm-hmm. I, that framework has always stuck with me, you know, because I'm, I, I've thought a lot about that and we don't need to go into that. So I want to just switch into relationships. Talk to me a little bit just on this note of death. Most people are going to watch their partner struggle or grieve the loss of somebody. Mm. And I'm curious about your take on how we support our partner through the the deepest, hardest of times, through the grief of losing a parent or a friend, through the depression that hits, you yeah. know, through the the lostness. Like, what does it look like to just be a, a lighthouse for our partner when when they're lost? Yeah, it's interesting. I had a boyfriend years ago whose father died when we were together, and then you know, my ex husband was not there for me through the death of my mom, so. And and I think it's not just the death, it's the diagnosis, right? Like as soon as you hear that someone you love has a bad diagnosis, right? Some, a cancer diagnosis that can, that will likely kill them. You start to grieve that very moment. So the, so death actually really begins in that moment. And the way that you support someone is just by being really present with them, really tender with them, really compassionate. And to get over whatever bullshit discomfort you have about talking about hard shit, get over it and just be there and say, if you want to talk, I'm here for you. If you want me to distract you, I'll distract you, but don't make it about you. Don't make it about you. And uh, that's really important. I think that, so that's for when your spouse or a loved one is going through something traumatic, like the death of a loved one. You know, I have an episode on like what, how to help a partner who's depressed. You know, it's difficult because often, and we don't talk about this enough, but often people who are, if you're in a relationship with someone who's depressed, I have to remind that person to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that's number one. And also to understand, to encourage them to try to understand why their partner is depressed because people will experience a depression for many different reasons. And sometimes, a lot of times it has to do with a person not having anything to look forward to in life, feeling like they don't have any passion in their life, purpose in their life, meaning in their life. So I think that when you can know what's really ailing your partner, you can support them better. So I think knowing why, I think taking care of yourself is very important. And yeah, I mean, to go back to what happens when you have when your spouse or your partner's parent is dying, I'm not suggesting you ignore your life. Life must go on. But 
you got to really do your best if you're uncomfortable talking about it or whatever it's triggering you, like get over it. And that's, you know, probably not the politically correct advice, but you really do have to try to get over it and be there for your partner and just be a steady presence. That is really the gift. That's just really the gift. And, you know, and talk about it. Like I said, say, do you want me to distract you? Do you want to not talk about it? Do you just want a hug? And then, I don't know, it's, I think that what people lose sight of is that in a relationship, it really is the little things. It's the little things that matter the most. It's the little things that destroy a relationship. And it's the little things that make a relationship. So regardless of what your partner is going through or not, if you see that they're having just even a bad day, just like, I don't know, fixing that, you know, making some tea for them or giving them a random hug. If you are attuned to your partner, if you are attuned to their energy, you will notice when there's an energy shift and you don't have to always try to get them to talk about their energy shift. You just give them something that every human being wants, which is to be safe and touched and held and to be nurtured. And I think that, you know, communication is not just what we say with our words. There's tons of nonverbal communication. And the more that you are attuned to your partner and what they're and what they need in a moment when they're down and you just do the little things here and there, that's what matters. I agree entirely. I agree entirely. And I wanted to say when you said get over it, I feel like more people just need to hear that, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like sometimes it's like get over yourself, like get yeah. over your shit, get over the stuff that you like, just put it to the side for a moment. And this isn't advocating for neglecting your own needs or anything like that. No. Or if you're I'm a people pleaser, no. you know, cause I hear it's so funny how whenever there's like very direct advice or, you know, sort of direct stuff, a lot of times people are like, well, what well, about, what about, what about, but what about yeah, the, the what, what about says like, oh, yeah. fucking yes, we get it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. There's nuance yeah, to You everything. are right. Yes. You are right. Yes. There's but no, nuance. I do. I do yeah. think that there's just this, there has to be more space for things to be relational and for people to operate in a relational way. I was doing an interview yesterday with a gentleman and we were talking about the, like, the red pill came up, like the red pill movement. And mm-hmm. You know, I said one of my big issues with the red pill and some of the guys that are in there is that oftentimes it's not very relational. You know, it's actually not about you being in relationship with somebody. It's about you having some type of control or dominance or superiority to make the relationship function. Hmm. And that's problematic. You know, that's that's problematic. And anyway, that's a side tangent. Tell me a little bit about how you think in terms of how we as people choose partners like what goes into that because so often yeah i get questions i'm sure you get the questions from people of like why did i choose this person or i'm in this relationship and i remember getting a question just the other day i did a q a and somebody said my partner and i've been together for six years both of us know that this isn't the right relationship but we can't leave each other (laughs) you know and it's like okay well clearly you chose each other for a reason So what do you think goes into how we choose partners, why we choose them? And, and then I think we should talk about like, why do we actually choose the wrong people? Yeah. uh, If there is such a thing. 
Well, first, it's so interesting. You said that couple that says we've been together for six years and we know it's not right, but we can't leave each other. I'd be so curious to to know why they think it's not right. Because mm. a lot of people will say, well, it's not right. Well, maybe it is right. Maybe you just need to like, maybe you just don't have the proper help to make it better. But anyway, that was just a thought. So we choose people often until we are like v- become very aware from our from our subconscious, from our unconscious, you know, it's sometimes we will choose partners who, who remind our unconscious of a struggle from childhood, perhaps with a parent. And so our unconscious thinks this person, the unconscious recognizes that this person will present the exact same problem to them that they had in childhood. And our subconscious is saying, let this will be an opportunity to work it out. So I do think that there is, you know, there's this theory that the unconscious mind is always looking to sort of resolve issues from our childhood. And we do that in our adult romantic relationships. And that's when we, that's when we marry our dad or we marry our mom or we partner with our mom or our dad. And, you know, sometimes those relationships are absolutely doomed and sometimes they're not, you know, with the right help, with the right help. And if there's other things that are right about it, and you've got two people who are willing to really kind of work through it, you can work through it. Sometimes, you know, we, we choose partners also based on our conditioning from Hollywood and from literature. The young girl, for example, who has an idea of what her Prince Charming or her Princess Charming looks like, you know, and that's been sort of imprinted in her brain since she was a child. And so she meets someone who is familiar in that way, who who has on the surface some of the qualities. Maybe it's how they look. Maybe it's certain other things that reminds them of the archetype that they had always imagined and fantasized themselves being with. Then, you know, we choose partners based on, and this is also childhood stuff. It's like our need to fix and to heal. And you'll see, you know, men choose partners based on needing to feel like the hero and that they can choose a partner who has a really big problem and they can rescue them. And women do it too. They, they fall for people who have a really big problem. So I can be the reason why this person changes. Mm. And that's because true emotional intimacy demands that there isn't someone better than the other. But when you get into these dynamics where you're rescuing someone, healing them, therapizing them, being the hero being the inspiration for their change, all sort of part of the same iteration, you are essentially better than them. That's that's what you're saying. It's like, I am the guru, you are the victim, and I am going to be the reason for, I'm going to bring light into your life. I'm going to awaken you. And that feeds the ego. And it also makes it so that there isn't any true emotional intimacy because as long as that dynamic is happening, you're not equal, so to speak, for lack of a better word, from from a state of consciousness perspective. And so people have all sorts of patterns. I was just going to say, like on that note, like I usually have, have noticed, and this is just a generality, it's not a rule, but that men are often focused in on, I'll fix your problems. And women are often focused in on, I will fix you. 
Mm. Right. So like, I'll fix your, I'll fix your behaviors. Yes. And that's, that seems to be the intersection where a lot of relationships clash, where a guy's like, oh, you have problems. Let me fix those problems. Right. How you're feeling stuff with your mom, stuff at work, stuff with your business. And then what women often focus in on is a man's internal landscape, right? Like his behaviors, his choices, you know, how he's, how he's feeling, et cetera. Like I remember getting, I, I got a question, the same Q&A the other day, and it was a woman. She said, I've been with my husband for a while. I love him. He's an exceptional man with a big heart, but he's resistant to doing the inner work mm-hmm. or doing the, doing the deep work. And I was like, well, if he's an exceptional man with a big heart, what's the problem? Like you're exactly. actually not telling me what the, you're, you're actually telling me that, that he's a great guy yeah. and that he's like good yeah <laughs> but but he's not doing the deep work i was like i was like what's the issue here <laughs> you know like okay what are you actually saying i have so much to say about that but first don't let me forget yes you're absolutely right men like to fix the problems women like to fix the person the character traits so there's a couple of things the way that i see it which is i think that men derive a lot of their comfort and happiness knowing because they believe that they are responsible for their partner's happiness So if there's a problem, they're going to fix it. And then they're going to put a smile back on their partner's face. And then as soon as they say the smile, their nervous system relaxes and they're like, I did good. I don't think that's necessarily a terrible thing in and of itself, in and of itself. But it's when it becomes, well, maybe they don't want their problems to be fixed. Maybe what fixes their problems is a big giant hug, you know? And I think that, um, And men like to apply their logic to things and they see the solution. And it's also a part of how their brain works, right? The brain works somewhat differently. So yes, so that's definitely what happens. And um, they try to just make the broken bird just kind of have their wings and fly again. For women, I think that there's a couple of things that go into play. One is I need you to be strong And if you're not strong, I feel insecure with you. So let me control what's going on for you internally so that you can actually become, let's just say in this instance, it's the man who I need you to be. So that's one thing. I've done that. Then there's the, call it a nurturing instinct, call it a, um, again, this need to heal or to be sort of like, the inspiration for the change. That's a very big narrative for women, which is Mm. I need to be chosen. And so let me find the person who is most likely not going to choose me, AKA emotionally unavailable or fucked up in some way and can't, you know, whatever, can't be in a relationship or simply a great person, but just not that into you in that way doesn't feel that strong connection to you. And she will do anything to, to be chosen. And that's old stuff. That's old, <laughs> old, old stuff. And so to go back to what was it, the, the choosing, I think that um, it's so important to a couple of things. One is to be aware of what your pattern is and then to choose different kinds of partners. That's number one. So you might have to start to like start dating people who are not necessarily your type. And if that's very confronting to you, then you might have to look into why you struggle to receive love, what scares you about true emotional intimacy, what scares you about not playing the role that you have always played. 
because that's a big source of where a person derives their sense of importance and significance. And so all of a sudden they're in a relationship and it's like, you know, we're a relationship should be about love and connection and growth. But a lot of people seek out relationships to feel more important and to feel more relevant and to feel more significant. It's like the ego is driving the ship. So you have to start choosing better partners based on knowing what your pattern is and also recognizing that you choose. This isn't about trying to be chosen by someone. You choose. And then you know what? It sucks to be rejected, but sometimes that's just a part of life. And there are going to be people that your ego is going to convince you that that is the person for you. You want them. You're attracted to them. You've projected a childhood fantasy onto them. They are the one. And so by them liking you, you're all of a sudden validated. And then with their, if they're not liking you, that is like killing the ego. And we have to, just to keep it on, on, theme, on brand today, we have to get over it. There are going to be people who are not going to feel the same way about you back. But I really believe one thing to be true. Anyone who is not feeling you, who's just not feeling it with you, who's not into you, who's not choosing you, they really truly are not for you. And even though you've convinced yourself that they are the quote unquote one, that part of you that's convinced you that they are the one is deluded. And it's all ego because there's just, they're just not for you. Well, it's coming from a place of, can you, if you choose me, then my lack of self-worth or my insecurity, it'll prove that wrong, but yeah. it never does. Yeah. Right? That's the, that's the illusion of what well, I, I, mean, I call it, many people I think have called it one-itis, right? That there's like, there's one perfect person and I can just find that perfect person. And then when you do find that perfect person, it's always a shit show, you know, mm -hmm. because all of your insecurities and all the fears and all the lack of self-worth and the self-doubt just all of a sudden just blurks and kind of gets like puked onto them and into the relationship. Yeah. And <laughs> which is a very uh, visual way of putting it. <laughs> but, you know, it, it kind of comes out and all of a sudden it's like, well, I need you to choose me. You have to be the one in order to affirm who I am in order to affirm that I'm worthy and that yeah. I'm good enough and that I have value and all these other things. And it, it pressurizes the system and then it just falls apart. Yes. Right. And so I, I'm with you hundred percent. I've, I think that we have this very like modern relationships have been, I, I call it Disneyfied, right? Like they've been, there's been this like Disneyfication of modern relationships to such a degree where many people have this like very subtle form of brainwashing of what a mm -hmm. what a relationship should look like and then when a real relationship comes along and is actually there it's very it's like missing out on this sort of whimsical you know quality that that's been sold in disney where you like you drop a shoe and somebody picks it up and like all this other nonsense yes, right exactly. so but real relationships are gritty sometimes and they're raw and they're real as fuck. And they are going to bring the parts of yourself that you least like to the forefront and the other person. You know, it's like, I think this is why I really liked Carl Jung's work is that like, he, he says something along the lines of a woman will always bring out 
the parts of a man that he least knows. A woman will always evoke a man's shadow. And in that way, he's sort of saying, like, relationships are going to bring out your insecurities and your fears, yes. and they'll be projected onto their person, and and that that they manifest so that we can actually work on them, you know, so that we can actually integrate them and we can be with them and we can become more whole, and that relationships are the vehicle that we can do that. Yes, but if if how we're looking at a relationship is that it's going to be so the solution to our fears, problems, and insecurities and anxieties, like, man, you're in for a rude you're awakening. In, you're in for um, a rude awakening. Yes. But absolutely. I've been there too. I've yeah. been there too. I've totally been that person that's like, she's the one and she's on this pedestal. And mm-hmm. oh man, it's like, what a disaster. It's a disaster. So, yeah. This is why self-awareness is a relationship superpower. I'm going to mostly pull us towards men, but I, you broaden it out to just people in general, wherever necessary. Do you feel like there's a correlation between the, this disconnection with our bodies and our physical forms and the sedentary life and the escalation and anxiety that seems to be so prevalent within our culture? I think there's 1000% yes. I, for, for, for your listeners who don't know, I spent 20 years in higher ed, I'm, I'm a nerd as a researcher and a professor and as a dean of students, just a, I'm just a dork of nerds, nerd of nerds, as my friends call me. And I think a lot of it started there with the specialization and you go to one building for mental health and you go to literally another building for physical health and you go to another campus for medical health and you go to another campus for theological health and you go. To, so I think, um, and then you go to the campus center for human interaction, right? And so we've created all these artificial bifurcations that aren't real. And I 1 million percent agree with what you just said. We've told a generation of person that good mental and emotional health is getting all the thoughts in the right order and sit and talk and sit and talk and sit and talk and sit and talk. And if you can't sit and talk, dope up. And there's a place for sitting and talking. Absolutely. And there's a place for what a exquisite sliver of history we live in where there's there's such powerful medications for certain things both those are great but man it doesn't get at the root which is we've designed a civilization that our bodies are not designed to live in we've created a civilization that our bodies aren't designed to live in and so we're mad at our bodies for being anxious and we're mad at our bodies for being worried and frustrated and that's just madness it's like it's like getting mad at the smoke alarm in your house for going off it's you want it there and if we look back at our bodies, like not being frustrated with them about all the anxiety and all the worry and all the depression, instead of saying, what is our body trying to tell us in this moment right now that we have created chaos and uh, we're not designed for it and we need to solve for the root problems here? Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to put it. And it's it's interesting, the smoke alarm analogy. <laughs> it's like, now I got to chuckle out of that because I feel like my smoke alarms just go off you know, like when I'm cooking steak and in not once where there's an actual fire, but yet I know that having them there is imperative, you know, like having them there is so important. And it seems like that's a good analogy for what happens in our body in the sense that oftentimes the alarms are going off in our body for reasons that we don't even know about, or, you know, that don't even make sense to us. So let's just go but into- Let's, let's follow, let's follow that, that analogy all the way down. I have a and there's just reams of data on this too. I am a sensitive guy and not in a pejorative way, but my, my smoke alarm, if you will, my anxiety alarms are very, very sensitive. They go off when there's the hot water's too hot, right? And there's steam in the, in the house. And there it goes off when you're cooking eggs in the morning. My wife, I mean, the house has to be caving in on itself. And she's like, we should probably get out of here, right? So 
her calibration is different. The work both of us have to do on either side of that barbell is not to go up and pull the batteries out and just or smash it with a hammer and say, whew, that thing can't make any more noise. I have to know, hey, your alarms go off quicker than others. So what do I have to do upriver, whether that's exercise, whether that's moving my body, whether that's making sure I got a group of men I'm regularly in, in touch with, whatever that happens to be, so that I can clearly hear those alarms. And when you're cooking steak, you just know, oh, that's that's the steak. You don't instantly go, fire everybody out, because you know, right? And my wife has to know, I don't tend to feel that until maybe the tipping point has already passed. And so I need to be extra alert for when those things might start chirping at me, right? Mm. And so I think all of us, the work is figuring out what our alarms do and what they don't do, and then making our adjustments and our individual lives upstream. So for you, anxiety, I'm going to give you a two-pronged question. One is just, can you you know, because there's a lot of talk about anxiety nowadays. And I just, I'd like to just sort of get your individual take on how would you define anxiety? What is it? And then secondly, what are some of the, in your experience in working with people, what are some of the biggest quote unquote causes that are feeding into people's anxiousness? So um, anxiety, just cut and dry, is simply an alarm that your body sets off generally speaking now you can have some brain lesions and and epilepsy and things like that but on the whole your brain is sounding an alarm that's telling you that you're not safe or that it has identified a scenario a situation or an environment that you're not safe it can also set off when it finds you that you're alone like we are wired in to be in a tribe and 250 years ago if you'd found yourselves on the northern new york plains in the woods and your tribe had left you you were probably going to die you're going to die of exposure you're going to get eaten by something you're going to run out of water so our bodies will sound every alarm we have when it, it notifies it then we were identified as as alone and our alarms will ring when we lose autonomy or freedom in our life when somebody mm. else is deciding what we do and we think instantly of that that um just jerk boss, right? We are that guy that just, you're going to be here and answer my emails within 15 minutes. We think of that. Some deeper levels that we don't think about is if you owe somebody money, if Toyota Motor Company is telling you what you're going to do tomorrow, or your mortgage company is going to tell you what you do tomorrow, your body would be failing you if it let you sleep deeply. It would be failing you if it lets you focus on sex and reproduction. It would be failing you if it did anything other than screamed at you to say, hey, if you say one wrong thing at work or put one wrong thing on Twitter and you get fired, you lose your home, you lose your car, you lose your food, and your family goes. And so we, if you, you can literally lay the U.S. both collective and individual debt loads, and it maps right on top of the trend line for anxiety and depression in this country. <laughs> and that's just something we don't think about, right? And it's just become so unintentional. Of course, you go get a car loan. Of course, you go take out a 30-year mortgage. But your brain is designed to keep you safe. It doesn't care about how good a deal you got. If you go even further, our calendars are so chaotic. And if you miss one, if you're two minutes late to one thing at 8 a.m., the whole week is shot. Our little league coaches are telling us you know, our son's little league coaches are telling us what we're going to do for the next seven years of Saturdays and Sundays and where thousands of dollars go. Somebody else is running our life in so many different areas. And when your body knows you are not driving your own car, you're in the backseat of your own life, it will sound the alarms for you. So really, I like Wendy Suzuki. She's a professor up there at NYU. She calls anxiety friend, right? She says it's, it's good. 
I don't, <laughs> if it is, a, if it's my friend, I've been doubled over. So if it's a friend, it's not like a person I want to hang out with a lot. But if I reframe anxiety as when I start feeling anxious or burned out or worry, and by the way, there's a clinical anxiety. I think I, I just got kind of done with that. It's become a colloquialism in our culture and just refers to any sort of discomfort. But dude, when I feel anxious, if I can just stop for just a second and be curious, like what's my body trying to tell me? Oh, me and my wife need to sit down right now. Mm. Or my kids don't want to be in the same room as me. What's happening in my life? Um, man, now you're talking about anxiety is a pretty good indicator on your dashboard. And that's it, man. That's it. I, I don't want to over-dramatize. That's what it is. No, it's that's perfect. You know, I think as you were talking about the debt and overlaying that on anxieties and depression, I mean, I think this this calendar year was the first year that the United States citizens credit card debt topped one trillion dollars, right? So Americans now have over a trillion dollars in credit card debt. And I mean, listen, I I get it. Like I remember being in debt where my credit card was just maxed out and they just kept raising the limit on it. And it was just maxed out and maxed out and maxed out. And I always had sort of like 250 to $500 little tiny breathing room, right? It's kind of like just yeah. sipping air, like you're in water and the, the room's filling up and you're just kind of sipping air from the top of the room. You know, it's like living like that is very stress inducing and anxiety inducing. I'm curious to get your take on with the cultural shifts that we've seen, so the societal shifts that we've seen. Over the last few decades, do you think that men and women have different different avenues that cause them anxiety? Like, do you think that men have different things that are causing them to be anxious in their life? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's all gonna it's all gonna distill down to some sort of identification of a lack of safety. But I think that's gonna manifest differently, right? Mm -hmm. My wife has notoriously we go into some place and I start chit-chatting with somebody and she'll say, she'll grab my arm and say, we need to go right now. And when we were first together, I'd be like, "You're uh, come on, we're having fun. That guy's just being loud. A hundred percent of the time she said, we need to go. It ended up being an issue. Something popped up. And so now after being with her for, for a quarter of a century, when she says, Hey, we need to go. I don't even, like I smile and I grab my stuff and I say, Hey guys, I'll see you later. And we leave. And I don't, I don't even need an explanation anymore. I don't, it's right. So she has an innate sense that, Hey, there's something about to set off. I think in men, there is a, an innate, where is our tribe and shame? We're not enough. And when our body begins to feel like we're not enough, we're going to be on the outside of this thing. We either have to band together with a group of people, which currently in this ecosystem is who we all hate together, not what we're all constructively doing together, but who are we all against? Mm. Which is such a navel gazing way to burn your own house to the ground. And you start looking for not ways you can go solve problems, but people you can point at. And it feels like you're doing a thing with a, with a tribe, but it is just a nasty, gnarly cut rate substitute for actual shoulder to shoulder. We're solving this thing. We're going to get food. We are going to build, right? It's much easier to burn to the ground. And um, I, th I think that's the difference. I mean, you see that over, you've seen that for generations in the Middle East, right? Instead of seeing a tall tower and saying, hey, I can build that too. It's, you see a tall tower and nah, -uh, you're not gonna have a taller tower than me. Let's knock it down. Mm. And I think um, we are on a bullet train towards that cultural attitude to kind of rolling over on us too. I call it Titanic syndrome. Remember when the movie, you may be too young, when the movie Titanic came out, I don't care who you are. It was the, it was the most extraordinary spectacle ever. 
I cried. I cried twice when I saw it in the theater. One of those times, I went by myself, Connor. That's how that's how manly I am to admit that out loud. And everyone I'm, I went, everyone I went with, the toughest, biggest, like everybody was like caught up in that spectacle. And then once it became such a spectacle, everyone's like, ah, oh, that movie sucks. And it was, it was, it, it became the most important thing to tear it down. Right. Mm. And does it hold up over time? I mean, not great, but it was, it was what it was. And we just are so uncomfortable with saying something's good. But yes, I think ultimately men and women, their bodies can detect different sorts of threats and depending on where they happen to be. Um, but I do think it's asking yourself, what, what's my body trying to get my attention? Yeah. It seems like the, the cultural, war that seems to be happening i mean one it's just it's so easy to get caught up in because there's something there's something almost intoxicating about the the row that happens online and on social media and it's so easy to have your nervous system be hijacked like i've i've been saying on my show for a while like the the people who are the most successful in the next like 10 to 20 years are going to be people who are able to regulate their nervous system underneath duress, you know, when there's stress and duress online and offline, because so many people have become so easily hijacked by the, the narratives of social media and getting in the culture wars and getting into political wars. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost like it gives us this illusion that we're a part of something. I like the way you said that, which I think ties into one of the things that I was going to bring up, which is that it, it seems like on average, not this isn't like the rule across the board, but on average, I would say that men are just generally lonelier than women. And one of the things that you were indicating is that loneliness is a, a pretty solid predictor of anxiousness. And so I would just love I mean, for you to- I, I, I would go as far to say it's causal. And uh -huh. I, as a as a science nerd, I, I, it's you got to be careful when any time you say this equals that. I'm a hundred percent confident in the causality. If your body identifies that you're alone, and by the way, so we've got these phones. I can text my wife a thousand times today. I love you. I'm so grateful for you. And what I'm doing is I'm giving her data. I'm giving her zeros and ones. And you've heard the statement, and it's it's any number of statistics. I've I've, I've tried to track this the actual study done. I can't find it, but seventy to ninety percent of communication is nonverbal. We just mm -hmm. suck that out. And I I tell her I love her, I love her, and then I walk in that day. I don't need to tell you I love you. I've told you a hundred times today. I go get my drink. I sit down on the on the couch. I throw my feet up. I turn the TV on, and her body says not safe. Her body says that guy's avoiding us. Um, she misses the eye crinkles and the embrace and the seeing my shoulders drop and exhale because my home is warm and I can't wait to see her and I've missed her all day doing stupid spreadsheets at work, whatever the thing is. And so we substitute communication transmission for actual connection, for friendship, for actually solving a problem. Hmm. The most beautiful way I've ever seen this done is there was a group of guys um, back in Texas when I lived there years ago. And here's what they did. Once a month, they all got together on Saturdays and here was the rule. You had to bring your kids and you had to bring something to like, eat or something or something to drink, right? So there's always just pizza and beer and cereal. I mean, it was just nonsense. But they would every, at two o'clock, whoever was left, everybody put their name in a hat and draw it. And then 30 days later, you sent out whatever you wanted done. And a whole herd of people would show up to your house and like electrical work. We need to change the bumper out. I need someone to paint the bathroom. I need someone. I need four guys to move six yards of sand over here. And over the course of about a year, everybody learned how to kind of do a little bit of electric work. 
and everyone kind of learned how to level a yard and we all laughed and our kids all got to see us have friends and our kids all got to see their dads working hard. But it was this sense of we're going to solve a thing. We're going to accomplish a thing. And we, we saved thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in labor costs. We all learned some stuff. We all laughed really hard. Some guys got terrible paint jobs in their house, right? That I'm sure they had to hire back out. But it was this sense of we're going to stand shoulder to shoulder for something. And that's to take care of. So that's just one example of, man, I, I think if men, and I even, I even heard this recently that, and I'm still letting it roll around, that over the last 25 to 50 years, the male obsession with sex and what kind of sex and how, how like increasingly erotic and um, alive we have to, f- is a proxy for a lack of connectivity in our day-to-day lives. You take men over thousands and thousands of years, millions of years who dug holes together and went hunting together. All that's off the table. And now I sit in a cube next to somebody with my headphones on. My body needs that connection. And so all of that gets dumped on my romantic partner at home, on my wife, and that she's got to, she has to make all that aliveness. That's on her, right? And so I, I don't know if there's any data to back that up, but it sure, it sure rang true to me. As always, team, don't forget to man it forward. Send to a friend send to your partner and have a conversation about it. I think that these are the types of things where it's like, what did you think about that? And what would you like to implement? So send it to somebody until next week. This is Connor Beaton signing off. See you then.